Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this week, my guest is the award-winning author, Jen Williams. Jen is most famous for her fantasy writing and has won the British Fantasy Award for Best Novel twice. The books that won were the first two instalments of the Winnowing Flame trilogy. Now, does that mean the third one is shit? No. She lost out to previous guest on the show, R.J. Barker, when he launched his epic Tide Child trilogy with The Bone Ships, which, as anyone who has read it can tell you, is a great book. Now, like RJ, she has turned her hand to crime. Not literally, just writing in the genre, and her latest thriller, Dog Rose Dirt, has already been picked up for development into a TV drama series. Jen is a fantastic guest, an amazing talent, and just generally pleasant to talk to. I enjoy this chat immensely, and I hope you do too. And here it is. And I'm joined by Jen Williams. Afternoon, Jen. Hello. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Glad to be here. I'm pleased you're here as well. And my first official question, as always, what are we drinking? Uh, well, we're drinking in a very civilized manner. We are having a gin and tonic. We um, are indeed. Yeah. I can hear my ice jangling. Ice cube, yeah, for context yeah. of listeners who'll be listening to this in a couple of months' time, uh, we're in false summer uh, in March, <laughs> where we had those couple of days of twenty degree heat. So everyone got sunburnt, and then it's going to like snow in about two days. Joys so of spring, basically. It is the joys of spring. Makes no sense. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think it's about twenty today in Bristol, and it's forecast to be seven degrees in three days. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sitting here in a really big jumper because it's cold in my flat. But if I go outside, it's really hot and I have to yeah. put a t-shirt on. We have that so, in our house that our living room is cold and my wife's under a blanket. But if you go into the conservatory, it's absolutely boiling. It's the other side of the house. So it's just, yeah, yeah. love this country. Love right. it. It's great. So with gin and tonic, is this just a warm weather drink? Is this a writing drink? Is this a celebratory drink? What's a gin and tonic to you? Well, you know, I didn't used to like them at all. I didn't like gin at all for years and years and years. I think it was... I didn't like the spirit. I didn't like the taste of tonic or any of it. And I think somebody bought me a bottle without realizing that I didn't like it. So, you know, <laughs> I don't want to waste it, obviously. Mm. And I'm even less likely to give it to someone else because I'm stingy like that. So <laughs> I trained myself to drink it and ended up really liking it. And I guess that was a couple of years ago. And I discovered over lockdown that there are these little handy little cans that you can get from supermarkets where it's pre-mixed so yeah it's become a little bit of a I would say it's a lockdown treat tradition is you know over the um the long and miserable last couple of years <laughs> yeah. we would have a gin and tonic every now and then in the evening when my partner got home from work and I had essentially clocked off for the day from my yeah. own because I work from home mostly yeah. so I would be like right it's half past five Marty's home let's have a gin and tonic very you know nice. and it's quite nice it feels yeah. very fancy uh it feels quite I know because I'm 40 now as well. I feel like yeah. I should be drinking more old lady drinks uh, <laughs> and gin and tonic definitely feels like a old lady one. The one that I've got today actually is a pink gin, oh, which feels especially yes. like I mean, for your auntie drinks. I was going to say you're a week or two away from getting a blue rinse. That's... I had one of those accidentally when I was a teenager <laughs> because I dyed my hair purple with a really dodgy dye from Camden Market and it came off on all of my mum's furniture for oh, the next no kind of month which she loved obviously but when it had gone because I had quite fair hair then what you were left with is this kind of like blue purple tinge oh wow. so I did in fact look like an old lady it's great <laughs> amazing and 
where I'm speaking to you now, is this your writing desk? Is this where all, all the creative magic happens? Yeah, pretty much. We live in a one-bedroom flat in London, so this is our bedroom. And this corner is essentially my writing area. So I've got a little, just a little wooden desk, which is next to our back door, which is this windowy bit on this side. And it's literally just crammed right in the corner. <laughs> so you have to, because <laughs> for various reasons, we ordered a bed that was much too big. So you essentially yeah. have to step over the corner of the bed to get to my writing desk. Yeah. And p potentially if there's a fire, it's a massive fire hazard, but you know, <laughs> haven't yeah. died yet. So no, that's good. But yeah. So this, this is pretty much where most of the books have been written, at least at this desk anyway. Yeah. So as it's tucked away in the corner of the room, does it leave you a lot of place for mementos or writing notes do you, or do you just lay them out on the bed i mean the bed kind of acts because the bed is right there yeah. <laughs> it acts as like a secondary desk so okay. it's constantly when i'm working it's covered in books and notebooks basically mm. and whatever else crap was on the desk and the desk itself is actually covered in toys and other bits and bobs and photographs there's some plant uh there's lots of bottles of ink so okay. basically there's loads of stuff and then there's this tiny space where I just about managed to fit the MacBook. And that's where I write. Oh, and there's, you know, post-it notes, notebooks, pens yeah. everywhere, basically. Are the toys of memento of just happy memories or are they things that are actually almost totems for the project you're writing on? It's a mixture, really, because I do, I will admit, I do like toys. So I kind of have like a, a sort of ongoing tiny action figure collection. And I like Lego, so there's usually Lego scattered about here and there. But there are a few things that I bought over the years that are specifically tied to a project because I felt like, like you said, like a totem, almost like a talisman mm. of the project. And I wanted it to be on the desk in front of me while I was working because it's, yeah. yeah, I don't know what that is, but it's this weird psychological thing, isn't it? It's nice yeah. to have something there yeah, that just reminds you. Like I've got this white porcelain fox thing. Okay. It's very sweet. Yeah. Very minimalist, uh, but yeah. 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 I mean, it's. He's just got a little face. Obviously, yeah. this is a podcast, so they yeah, can't see Yeah, great it, for audio, but it's 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 a it's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a, it's a it's white fox cute. sculpture, but very yeah. impressionist. I would just say, you know, clean lines, not a lot yes. of detail, but it's painted. It's got a painted face on that. It's very stylistic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I bought that at the beginning of writing the Ninth Rain because that kind of involves a lot of different beasts and things, and I just felt like that was a particularly magical looking beast mm. that I wanted on my desk but otherwise it's things like as you're thinking about it I think it's often to do with stories that I've enjoyed mm -hmm. and so therefore they find a place on my desk like Star Wars I've got like a few and I've got like a uh, I've got some Skeletor it. from He-Man somewhere amazing a few Thundercats some stuff from video games so yeah it is yeah. basically a mess I don't think I'm the sort of person that can have an empty desk yeah. I just can't. My friend Adam Christopher also writes science fiction in, but he's writing a Star Wars book. His desk is completely clean. It's like nothing on it. And I always, it always makes me laugh because you couldn't find a more obvious kind of uh, symbol so, of how different yeah. we are. Yeah. So is there a totem or talisman that you have for a current project? At the moment, what am I doing at the moment? I have a plant currently that I've bought, which is like a little succulent thing. Okay. That's coincided with my current seeing because I'm writing a fantasy book again and it's got a lot to do with the forest and nature and being outside and stuff so I thought it would be nice to have a, a little plant on my desk for that although yeah. to be fair they normally die I've only got one yeah. living plant and it's a marimo 
moss ball. They're like Japanese balls of moss and keep them in like a jar of water and that's it. You don't really do anything with them. So it could be dead. I wouldn't know, but it looks fine. So that's the only living plant that uh, has survived more than a year with me. We'll see how this one goes. We'll see how this one goes. It looks all right at the moment. So how long have you had it? Had it about a month. Okay. (laughs) So, so, yeah, that's, yeah, so far, it's, it's looking green. It's not yeah. looking yellow. We're, we're, it's good. It's good. It's getting sunshine at the moment. That's good. Yes. Um, it's haven't fallen off. Yeah. It's good. And is this, you know, this is where I start like eking little details out of your current project. Uh, so it's a fantasy book. Is this a fantasy book set in a world that you've created before? Or is this a whole new system, a whole new series? Or just a one-off? This will be hopefully a whole new series. It's a slightly different situation than my previous books because it's not on contract with anybody yet. So I'm essentially writing it in the middle of doing other projects. I'm waiting for the edits to come back on my second thriller, which was contracted with HarperCollins. So while that's going on, I'm keeping myself busy and writing a fantasy book because it's been a little while since I've written one. I really wanted to get back to it. So this will be a completely new world, new characters, completely separate to the previous two trilogies. Yeah. Yeah. And was this an idea that had been kicking around a while in your head or was it just the edits went off for your thriller and you're just like, what should I do? And then just something popped into your head. Yeah, it's actually been, it's been kicking around for a while, this project. So basically, because I've been working for the last two years on crime thrillers, every time there was a break, I would go off and do a little kind of palate cleansing fantasy writing because it's so different from writing crime. And there, there was a point where I had, I think, three different ideas for a fantasy book and I couldn't decide on which one I was going to do. So I had, I think, probably about six months of bouncing between three different ideas and being unable to really decide which one was the one that I really wanted to do, which is unusual for me because I normally, there's an idea uh, and I, that's it. I get very focused on that and I'll be off. But mm. with this, I don't know if it was because of everything else that was going on at the time. I didn't seem to be able to commit to one. So mm-hmm. I ended up writing, I guess, the first, I guess the first 30,000 words of all of them. Okay. Um, wow. When it comes to epic fantasy writing, that isn't mm. that much really. Yeah. And still not quite being able to commit. And then eventually I just realized that the characters and the world in this one were much more compelling to me than the others. And so I had to officially put them away into a separate folder and focused in on this one. So I have been writing it on and off for quite a while. So it's, yeah. So I'm hoping that I'll finish the first draft basically next month, maybe okay. or the month after. So it's, I think it's about 120,000 words long at the moment. So it's, oh, wow. it's definitely it's epic fantasy. It's definitely, <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely epic, but yeah. Yeah, it's almost there yeah. in terms of the first draft. And when you have these sort of three ideas that you're jiggling around trying to pick, do you tend to start ideas on a world basis? So there's something about that world, or is it a band of characters or a scenario within fantasy that you wish to explore? Was there a reason that they couldn't be combined with a very different worlds, for example? Yes, I think that essentially I usually start with characters. That's usually my jumping off point. And I knew that each character had a very different origin, so they couldn't really be in the same world. And what I tend to do is come up with a character that I really want to write. And then I ask myself where they came from and what's caused them to be the person they are. And that's where the world comes from. 
So I was building outwards from the character, building the world and the story around it is generally how I work. So they were too different to mesh together. But I know what you mean, because every now and then, and quite often really, books come about because you have three disparate ideas that suddenly make sense together. And then it's a book. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I still like the other ideas and they might still happen, but I think possibly what they need is maybe a couple of years mm. of composting, as yeah. um, we say in this household. Yeah. Uh, so you get to yeah. put things away for a bit and just let them, your subconscious work on it in the background. Yeah. And then maybe they'll be, they'll make more sense in a couple of years time. Yeah. That's a, that's a good analogy. I think that the one that I always return to is the cooking stove and that you've got a lot of pots simmering mm. and then it's just, you, you, one needs to come to the fore and be seasoned and it might be the dish that's next, but others need a bit more stewing, a bit more marinating to get the right flavors. But composting, I really like that as well. <laughs> I um, think I got that from art college many years ago and it was to do with some sort of creative project and the guest lecturer was talking about composting. And this idea that you would gather lots of, do lots of research and lots of sketches and just immerse yourself in a subject and kind of just let yourself sit with it. And that was, that would be the composting. And then eventually you'd have all this fertile ground in which to grow stuff. Yeah. 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 That's great. I really like that. You might hear that in later episodes. I might start (laughs) using that. Do spread it. I told my partner about it years ago and he still uses it as an excuse not to do things. So (laughs) have you done this and that? And he'd be like, oh yeah, I'm composting on that. That's not how it works. (laughs) (laughs) So going back to how you're, how you start, you start with some characters, you go back to their origin story. Is that a process that you do predominantly in your head? Do you start making notes? Do you write a biography of your character? Like actually like physically write it down or is it all just Mm -hmm. mental development? I think it's almost difficult to separate the two. I think, you know, you immediately, when a character pops up in your head, I think you're doing a lot of mental development straight away, but I am a big note taker. I do like using a lot of notebooks. I will make loads and loads of notes essentially straight away. Cause I feel like that's, it's almost the way I think now is by like physically writing on a page, I think is the way that ideas come together usually for me. So yeah, so I'll sit down. I'll have usually a notebook because I like to have as many notebooks as possible. There'll be one for characters and then there'll be one for what the world building stuff that might come out of that. And then eventually there'll be a notebook that's to do with plot and story. So yeah, a lot of note taking and it's always, almost always starts with their name. Where are they from? Where did they grow up? What sort of childhood did they have? Who do they know? Who's their best friend? you know, what their family's like, because all of that stuff lets me get an idea of who they are and how they'd react in situations long before yeah. I have to write how they're going to actually behave on the page. Yeah. Yeah. I can see the benefit of that. Certainly when you hear writers, when they get stuck over a situation where you go, I don't know how the character will, will get out of this or, or move the plot forward. But if you have an understanding of where they come from and how, why they would act the way that they act. If you have that understanding of their past, you can, and you can revisit and go, this is how they grew up. These are the experiences they had. This is how they would interpret that situation. Cause you can interpret as a narrator and how you want the plot to go. But the character, although it has elements of you, isn't you has their own agency based on all yeah. of their experiences. And that can be a really good way to avoid those kind of sticking points. Yeah, um, absolutely. And cause I, I write mostly 
I write close third person point of view. So each chapter will be from someone's point of view. So mm. all of the prose will be filtered through their experiences, essentially. So that sort of thing isn't like it's key, really. So like in the Winnowing Flame trilogy, I have a character who has been locked up since she was 11 years old and escapes when she's in her 20s. So obviously her life experience is completely different to someone who's lived a normal life in a city or some such. So how she reacts to things is completely different. And then on the other hand, I had a character who was 400 years old and had lived in this giant city full of elves, essentially. So obviously they have a completely different approach to it. Even like really tiny situations, they would see things differently. So that's always key for me, figuring out characters, definitely, is their backstories. That's character and backstory is where I start, I yeah. think. And then... Developing the world itself, like you said earlier, it's just it wants you to know the characters. It's like, what kind of world do they live in? Is that just as much fun or is it a bit more of a challenge to get a consistent world? And how much time do you dedicate to actually mapping out a world before you actually start working on the plot? Often I will start with a skeletal idea of it. So I've got some rules in place about where they are and some ideas about the magic system. But what I find is that as I'm writing the first draft, world building tends to come in and fill in the gaps as I go. So it's much more of an organic process mm. with world building. And it's one of the great kind of cheats of being an epic fantasy writer. Yeah. People will read the books and say, oh, well, you know, the world building is so complicated. And, you know, it's obviously thought about this a lot and which is not untrue. But the reality will be that the first draft probably didn't have, say, 50, 60% of the world building in it. And I've realized it as I go along. And then your second draft can be the part where you fix all of the bits that are missing and fill in all those details that make it this sort of big, lush, believable, strange world. I say it's cheating. It's not. That's how writing works. Writing is rewriting, as they say. Yeah. But, but definitely world building is always much more organic. I mean, at the moment, I'm writing this fantasy book. And as I said, I'm 120,000 words in, and I've just realized something. <laughs> I think last week, I guess a magic system fact that yeah. solves several problems at once. And I was, you know, over the moon, but it does mean <laughs> that when I rewrite it, there's going to be a lot of adding things in and shifting yeah. stuff about. But ultimately that's one of the big joys of writing for me is yeah. when a solution suddenly crops up like that, that you're not expecting. And then it's just, yeah, that's just fabulous. And obviously you've written two crime thrillers now. Your approach to world building as it's a real world setting, I gather, would be different. Um, yes. So how's that approach? Do you still start with like a skeletal, you know, what kind of community are they in? Uh, how, how does the world building start in a real world setting? Yeah. So it's, obviously it's very different uh, to writing yeah. a fantasy book. And it was a really interesting challenge because I hadn't, I hadn't really written anything that was contemporary before, not even in my kind of practice books before my first book came out, they were mostly all fantasy or science fiction. So having to work within a real world framework was interesting because I couldn't solve problems anymore by just making stuff up, yeah. which is my usual kind of default. So yeah, it was a very different experience. And I think the main thing with Dog Roast Dirt, the first crime thriller, was that it went through more edits than I have on any other book and it changed quite drastically from the first draft to the kind of final draft. So I think it was a, it was definitely a case of me learning on the job, finding out how 
crime thrillers work and how things like cliffhangers work and red herrings and clues and all this stuff that I suddenly had to contend with that you don't really in epic fantasy. So my approach was much more, much more as if it was the first book I'd written because Mm. I was trying all different ways to make it work. So I started off with a character that I wanted to write about and I had a hook that's often the beginning with crime and thrillers, I think, is I had a character who finds out that her mother, who has committed suicide, finds out that her mother has been writing to a serial killer for decades. That's the catalyst of the whole book. So rather than starting with a character that I wanted to write about, it was more starting with that hook and then asking myself things like, why didn't she know that she was writing to a serial killer for decades? Which leads to things like perhaps she doesn't have a very good relationship with her mother and then finding out why that was the case. And all through that, I had a kind of mirror storyline where you're exploring the, um, the serial killer who she's writing to. His backstory is the other kind of backbone of the book. Mm. So it was, I almost approached his story as I would my fantasy books in that I'm talking, who is this guy? Where is he from? What was his childhood like? And then the real meat and plot of the book was much more, uh, extrapolating from the central hook and then tying the two together. Yeah. So yeah, I learned a lot and yeah. I pulled my hair out quite a lot. And your main <laughs> protagonist, she's a journalist as well. So yes. having a real world job and in a fantasy book, you can have a wizard, a mage, a dragon hunter, and you're not going to have dragon hunters and wizards read the book, but you may have journalists read the book. Yeah. So did you feel a pressure to make that an authentic portrayal of a journalist? And did you research journalists? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to throw myself really deeply into getting really focused on the idea of what would a real journalist be like, because... Mm. I still want to have fun with the book. It's not all about realism, even with a, a genre like crime. But I did a lot, you do a lot of reading around and read up on other people's biographies and all those sort of bits and pieces that you do. And I didn't base her on anyone in particular, but mostly what I wanted was her to feel like emotionally like a real person. In fact, in the book, she, although she is a journalist, she's actually unemployed at the time. <laughs> so in, in that sense, it was a little bit easier because all I really she had to do She doesn't have to be a good journalist, it's fine. She doesn't have to be a good journalist. She did get the sack uh, for different reasons, but mainly the main important part of her being a journalist was that she was curious yeah. and wanted to know the truth. And I think that was like the core journalistic trait that I needed her to mm. have because a lot of the difficulty with writing something like a crime thriller is that often people have to behave in ways that you wouldn't realistically behave you would perhaps be straight down the police station and be like terrible scary things are happening yeah a great interview i saw of uh, lee child of the the Mm. jack reacher novels was how he's so well regarded in the u.s military of people just going well that doesn't happen in my unit but it really feels authentic and he's a Brit and he just made it up. And it's <laughs> yeah. just, no, he used to work on Coronation Street. I love it. And it's just, no, I love ne- it. never been yep. in the, the military. It just sounds good. Sounds plausible. And if it sounds plausible, I'm making fiction anyway. I was like, God bless you, Absolutely. sir. Absolutely. And it's just like, if, yeah. if it's emotionally true. That's really what you're going for. At yeah. least it is for me. I want, and I think that it's probably partly comes from a background in fantasy because I'm not really ever going to convince anyone that dragons are real, but. <laughs> You have to believe in the emotion of what's going on. It was the same with Heather. I needed you to think that it felt authentic what she was going through. 
rather than is she a Pulitzer winning journalist? No, she isn't. Yeah. And with plotting, obviously, once you've got your world base and you're clear on your characters, how in detail do you structure your plot outline? Is it just very much a, I start here, I want to end up there? Or is it a rough chapter or is it very beat by beat of how it goes about? And again, we'll go through the differences of fantasy and your thrillers, but if we focus on your fantasy that you're working on at the moment, how detailed was your outline when you started this project? Yeah. So I, I think of myself really as the kind of chaotic planner. So I will start with a fairly detailed, well, a reasonably detailed plan. I'm quite fond of the Save the Cat series. Yep. Do you know the screenplay writing yeah. uh, book where they also do Save the Cat writes a novel with a lot of stuff about beat sheets in there. And I do quite like that kind of way of laying things out. So for this book in particular, I had, I think, because there's four main characters in this fantasy book. So I had four beat sheets and they're scribbled in these quite large flat notebooks that I have. So I would scribble out the beat sheets so that I have an idea of what I'm heading towards. So I know you know what the catalyst is, what might be revealed at the midpoint, what the kind of all is lost moment might be. And hopefully some idea of the end is always nice. So I will start off with those. And then generally what happens is I will get, I guess about 50 to 60,000 words into the book and decide that I need to rewrite all of the plans. So, yeah. so they all get thrown out at that point or hugely changed anyway, because that's, I think, where I'm a combination of a plotter and a pantser in yeah. that I like the plot, but I don't always pay attention to it. <laughs> and I like the organic way that stories sometimes take their own turns and things. And again, that's one of the joys of writing fiction really is when stories come alive and start yeah. doing their own thing. So what it turns out to be is a lot of kind of planning that often gets ignored. <laughs> and then there's more planning. The, so, for example, at the moment, what I'm doing is I'm coming up to the, the finale, like the final third of this book. So I know where I'm headed now. So what I'm doing is as I go to write each chapter, I'm writing a series of notes of what I want to happen in the chapter and where the chapter needs to go, how am I ending it, and then I'll go off and write it. But still, even at this very late stage, while I'm writing, stuff could change. Yeah. So it's always subject to sudden changes yeah yeah so were you were saying earlier about the sort of sixty thousand word mark being where you ditch your initial plans is that <laughs> just because as you're writing you go oh i'm way off track i'm not even going to attempt to circle back to where i was supposed to go i should start writing another one or is it more of a sticking point where you get sixty thousand words and go oh where am i supposed to be and then it's like consulting the map and go oh I'm nowhere near. And so <laughs> is, is it more of a sticking point or just a natural self-reflection of, I need to update this map because it's wrong? <laughs> or is it, I've tried to consult the map and I realize I have no idea where I am. It can, it, sometimes it can go either way, really. So hopefully what happens is about the 60,000 word mark, the book has come to life a bit and I'm mm. sort of writing it without really looking at the plan anymore because I'm feeling where it's going and I'm following the characters and just enjoying myself. And then I get to 60,000 words and I'll say, oh, I'll just have a look at the plan and see where I am. And I'm nowhere near it. And it's like, that's fine because this was just, it was just a guidebook to get me started. So at that point I'll be like, no, I've got this 
story that's gone in a slightly different direction. So I'll do another plan that yeah. kind of reflects where I think it's going now. And then sometimes though, it can just be a complete disaster. My second book, The Iron Ghost, which was the follow-up to The Copper Promise, I think I rewrote the first 60,000 words of that three times because it was completely wrong each time. So that was a sticking point one where I got to 60,000 words and I thought, I don't know where it's going. My plan isn't helping and I think I just need to start again, which was terrific because it was my second book, which has a lot of very particular stress on it anyway, you know, because your first book's just come out, you're seeing reviews for the first book and getting reader reactions and such. And it's very hard not to be affected by all of that because I remember like reading reviews for The Copper Promise where people were saying, oh, I loved the dungeon crawl at the beginning of this book. It's amazing. And then I'd read another review that said, the dungeon crawl at the beginning of this was rubbish. I don't know what she's thinking. And then I'm sitting there looking at my second book saying, do I need to put a dungeon crawl in or not? Mm. I don't know. So it's very, there's a lot of anxiety around the second book, which I think probably torpedoed it for me a few times. So yeah, that, that point, I often feel like it's a turning point in my writing processes. Mm. If I get to 60,000 words and I'm happy, then it's all good. And I can just continue regardless of whether it's following the plan yeah. or not. If I get 60,000 words yeah. and I want to die, then... It's usually a sign, actually, that there's something wrong with the structure that I haven't spotted. Mm. So with The Iron Ghost, I had started the book too early, I think, was the problem with that. So mm -hmm. they often say you should start the book as close to the action as you can, yeah. if that makes sense. So what I'd done, that was start the book nine months before anything really happened. So you have 60,000 words of people wandering about, which is in epic fantasy. You do get a lot of people wandering about for long periods of time, but nothing was really happening. And I think subconsciously, you know that you've cocked it up somehow mm. and you don't need to go back. But thankfully, touch wood, I haven't had quite that massive a cock up since. It was a learning experience. Yeah. It was. Yeah, absolutely. And do you know what? I hated The Iron Ghost when I finished it. I could have happily flung it into the sun and never seen it again. But over the years, because people have contacted me who really liked The Iron Ghost, and I've gradually realized that it's, that I do like it. I, and I've come to love it as probably my favorite of that trilogy. Oh, great. So, <laughs> so it was a difficult birth, but yeah. ultimately a child I could love, yeah. it turns out. Um I think I want to touch on uh, that you say, Aaron, with time heals all wounds and that you, you can look back <laughs> yeah. uh, with the stressful book with fondness. But you were saying there's sort of with the pressures of the second book, obviously you have reader expectation and managing that. And I just find it really interesting how you went on writing two crime thrillers without a pseudonym. Mm. And I just want to take a moment just to ask you, how did crime thrillers come about? Was it like a long time thing that you wanted to do? And was there any discussion on whether you would have a pseudonym or not, because it is a completely different genre? Or was it always, no, I'm just Jen Williams writer and I will write whatever I damn well please? <laughs> Yeah, I'd always kind of, I, I mean, I've read a lot of crime. I read a lot of crime and a, a lot of horror. I grew up reading horror really more than fantasy. So it was always in the background that I would like to write a scary book at some point. And uh, I'd just gotten to the end of writing The Poison Song, which is the third book in my second trilogy. And I just felt completely exhausted with epic fantasy. I was at that stage where I thought, if I have to write one more aerial battle with magic and wings and swords and whatever, I will lose my mind. So I just 
really good to write something completely different. And yeah. as it happened, I was talking to my agent a lot about true crime at the time because we both watch a lot of the Netflix documentaries about terrible things and we're often sending each other Wikipedia links about gruesome murders and stuff. And she said, why don't you write a crime book? Why don't you write a book about a serial killer? Because we're always talking about them. And I've inadvertently done a lot of research over the years because I just find it interesting. Yeah, so I just thought that's a lovely idea because it's a completely different genre. I'll learn a lot from doing it as well. And it won't take as long, I thought, innocently. <laughs> I thought it won't take as long because they're only like 90,000 words. And my, I think my longest fantasy bit was 217,000 words. So I was like, I, I can write a crime thriller really quick, surely, which turned out not to be the case, but it was a learning experience. So yeah, so it was really just, I thought that it might make a nice change to try a different genre. And I guess I wasn't really thinking about it from any particularly a career angle or anything. I just sort of thought it would be fun to do. And yeah, so when it got picked up by Harper Collins, which is great, obviously, there was, I think there was a very brief discussion about it, because I think I asked actually, should I have a different name? Because you, often people do, obviously, when you hop genres, you might have a, a pseudonym or even just a little change to your name. But I think the general feeling was, I think people hoped that I might bring with me people who enjoyed my fantasy books. Although there's not a huge, I don't think traditionally there's a huge crossover with fantasy fans and crime fans. But I think there's enough, there was probably enough dark stuff in my fantasy books that there was a question over whether crime might also appeal to those readers. So, you know, I was a little bit disappointed because I had picked out various ridiculous names. Yeah. I think I wanted to be so like Enid Ebony Knight or something. I had all these like really goth names that I was really excited about, but no, still stuck with my very boring <laughs> real name. Yeah. yeah. So that was, yeah. So it was generally, there was only a very brief chat about it. Mm. And I think it was just thought that it would be better for me to go forward and hope that some of my fan base would be interested, mm. I think. And you said when you were reading, when you were younger, you used to read more horror and crime than you did fancy do you think you'll ever go an all-out like supernatural horror at some point i would like to but i'm not sure when i'm going to get the chance to do that there's nothing composting there's nothing composting <laughs> i mean both of well i say both what well, the second one isn't out yet the dog roast dirt has its kind of elements of weirdness to it mm. so there are a few there's nothing concrete, but there's possibly a few suggestions that something weird is going on at certain yeah. points. And my second crime thriller, which will be out next year, I think, similarly has quite a weird atmosphere to it. Okay. So I think I was pushing it as close to the edge of horror as I can get yeah. away with. Because one of, one of the interesting things with crime as a genre is that it has these rules. And one of the rules, sort of unspoken rules, is that you can't cheat the reader. Mm out of being able to guess who did it. So if you pull something like, oh, it turns out he was a vampire in a crime novel, then people will get very upset with you, yeah. I think. So there's a very fine line to walk. If you're calling it crime, then you yeah. have to be careful, I think. Yeah. Although I am a, I'm a huge fan of John Connolly's Charlie Parker books. And he's basically, he's a private detective investigating horrible murders, as yeah. you do. But they get increasingly weird and quite supernatural eventually yeah. which i really love so there's definitely there's a there's an audience for kind of crime supernatural meshing yeah so it's a question of whether you can get away with it or not but if somebody wanted me to write a full-on 
horror novel. I would very happily do it. In fact, I've written a horror novella that hasn't been announced yet, which I think is coming out at some point this year. And that's a full on horror. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So I did get to play around with that kind of thing a little bit. That's great. So that's all like edited, ready to go. We're just waiting for a publication mm -hmm. date on that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, this is the thing. Like, I'm not entirely sure if it's been properly announced yet or not. So I don't know if I can even talk about it, but it should be coming out in the next few months, or at least it's being announced in the next few months. Excellent. We'll keep an eye out for that. That's exciting. On to the daily grind then. Once we've got a outline that we're not going to stick to, but some very clear characters. <laughs> What's your writing day like? Is it something that you get up first in the morning, get dressed, grab your coffee, sit at your desk, or is it you wait until end of the day, everyone's gone to sleep? H how do you plan out your writing? It has changed drastically over the years. So my first books were written when I had a full-time job. I would usually either write when I got home from work, or if I had a vaguely late start, which I did for a little while when I was working as a receptionist, I would go and write in the morning before work. So I'd go into a cafe or Weatherspoons back in the day. And I would, you know, get my writing done before the day starts, which is it's like a really satisfying way of doing it because it feels like you've done, you've achieved what you needed to achieve right at the beginning of the day, which yeah. I always really liked. But now I mostly work from home. And the reality is that I am not a morning person. Okay. <laughs> at all. So usually my day at the moment, or at least for the last couple of years is I will get up and I will kind of potter around. I'll have tea. I will do any sort of admin stuff that needs doing emails or any kind of written interview stuff that I have to do or all of those things. And then when I'm feeling awake enough, I will start working usually about midday, I would say. And then I've got like a big long stretch of day where I don't have anything else to do. So I can really get into it then. Yeah. So my partner usually comes home at about half six. Okay. So I will have like six and a half hours, mostly uninterrupted kind of pootling about. And that's when most of the writing gets done, I think, yeah. during the week. That's actually really refreshing because I think I, I speak to a lot of writers who do work in the mornings and then afternoons that admin time and interviews and emails and that sort of thing. So it's nice to have a, an opposing view. That's good. And yeah, I hate people that are good at doing morning stuff. That must be really useful to be really with it straight away, but I am just not that person. Yeah. My wife yeah. and I, we work in different time zones. So yeah, so same oh. house, but different time zones. I'm <laughs> always early morning and she's like yourself and starts operating about midday, but then she won't go to bed till about 2, 3 a.m. Whereas mm. I get up nice and early and then about nine o'clock, it's okay. <laughs> I'm going to go to bed and read for a bit, but it's really oh. nice because it gives us overlap time. So, you know, mm. we have time together, but we also get a good chunk of time where one of us is asleep and the other has the house to themselves. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. it seems, seems to work quite well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's very similar to me and my partner yeah. as well, especially at the, at the weekends when we're both home. I will sleep in basically on the weekend and he'll get up and do something horribly healthy, like park run or something. Oh. <laughs> and I'll stay in bed and, and crawl out at half 10 or something. But yeah. then I will stay up, as you say, until two in the morning because I'm all awake then. I just seem to, I think I'm just one of those night people just happier at nighttime. Yeah. But yeah, I feel like I always worry slightly that I'm wasting the morning. But I mean, if you're working from 12 till six, that's a good chunk of time 
get stuff yeah. done and it seems to work oh i joke with my wife that she, she was a canadian in a former life and she's just on mm -hmm. canada time and that's it so <laughs> yeah. whenever it's um she's going oh i'm just wasting the day i was like well the time in toronto is this and actually you're fine <laughs> yeah, uh, remember that yeah and it's just that once you put yourself on a different time zone and just like that you operate on that and you're very consistent on that it's a good way of just going i'm fine i just happen to be in the wrong country yeah and I like that with your six hour writing session do you write more on how productive you're feeling that day or do you have a minimum daily target like a workout or a page count or do you set little timers for yourself that's like i've got to do it like a blast of writing for a certain amount of time yeah i seem to bounce back and forth through like several different approaches and i always have done i think i will go through periods where i want to do daily word counts i will say i need to do two thousand words this afternoon so that will be my goal. And then other days I'll go for a period where I think, no, you know, I, as long as I'm working on the book every day, it doesn't matter how much I'm getting done because I think it's more important to keep your head in the book than yeah. to achieve a certain word count. And then sometimes recently I've been in a patch of wanting to do writing sprints where I time myself. So I'll have 25 minute writing sprint and then I'll have a 10 minute break and then another 25 minutes which I found actually is really productive. You really get quite a steady rhythm going and that seems to work really well, but it does seem to depend on my mood. There will be days where I will just write 500 words and be like, oh, I will just sketch out the next three chapters, for example, and figure out where the other characters are going to be and what they're up to next. And that's vital as well in order for me to be able to feel like the next day, like I've got something to write, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think yeah. if, you're, if you're not writing straight away in the morning, you can revisit what you've written the day before and get back into that yeah. space. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's probably one of the key things that I've learned over the years is because I think there's always this ongoing debate about whether you should write every day or not, mm. you know, that it's always a little bit contentious. Yeah. And I think it's always a good idea to at least get your head in the book every mm -hmm. day, even if you don't get to sit down and write two, 3,000 words or yeah. whatever you plan to do, as long as you're thinking about it and maybe writing some notes or thinking about dialogue or just, just writing things on post-its or whatever, mm. as long as you've got your head in it, I yeah. think that's the key thing and that keeps it all turning along. Whereas if you have a few days where you don't do anything, it's so much harder to come back to it again yeah. and then you end up you end up having to reread one hundred and twenty thousand words <laughs> <laughs> i was like yeah what the hell's going on who are you oh, What's yeah. Uh, yeah who's this Which, character you know, yeah who are all these people yeah <laughs> who's dead and who's they did what i have no idea um, yeah and, Which, you know does happen yeah. i haven't actually had many guests on the show yet that do this but i'm aware that happens there are people who write a section in a writing session and then they go and you know, sort of cliffhanger or just going to stop there. end of chapter end of paragraph whatever and there are other mm. people who will consciously leave it mid-sentence so that mm. when they come back the next day it's you've got to complete the thought that was like the last time you were sat down is that something you've ever mm. tried and is that uh, something that appeals yeah. or just horror i think those people are unhinged to be honest <laughs> i <laughs> because I can see how that would work because it keeps you mid-flow in the middle of a sentence. But I feel like what inevitably would happen is I would sit there looking at it thinking, what was I going to say? <laughs> yeah. So my approach is much more 
I prefer to finish a session at the end of a scene if I can. And then I could be like, so I feel like I've wrapped up that scene or that chapter. And then before I finish for the day, I can write some notes about what I think is going to happen in the next chapter. So it sets me up for the next day. So I guess that's my version of doing that is to just do a very rough sketch of what I think is happening next rather than this unhinged half (laughs) sentence business. (laughs) And other thing that just, it's a question I don't ask that much, but it just suddenly occurred to me as someone who writes and works from home and the pandemic has been very much people reassessing their work-life balance and comfort and making sure they have time for themselves. As you wait for your partner to come home, do you feel as it's in your bedroom in the corner of the room that you need to dress for work? Or are you very much a loungewear writer? Because I think often in movies, you get this cliche of people shuffling around in a dressing gown. And some people are very particular about their loungewear. And so I'm just kind of curious, are you someone who gets dressed as they're going to work? Or is it just whatever's comfortable, I'm going to be sat here for six hours? Yeah, I think it depends on your definition of dressing for work. I guess I will change out of pyjamas, definitely. I will put some real clothes on, but I'm not dressing up. Because I know some people will actually wear shoes and stuff and actually dress like they're going out. But that, that's definitely not me. So I will usually, as you say, dress comfortably, mm. I think, because, you know, you are sitting in the same place for a long time and it's good not to feel really uncomfortable. And that yeah. sort of goes for your, your writing space as well. It's nice to have a space that feels comfy and comforting. But yeah, I, I have occasionally played with the idea of doing a kind of fake commute. Yeah. <laughs> because I am so bad at getting up in the morning and I thought, <laughs> what if... I got up, it was a job that I had to go to an office for. And I actually left the house and perhaps Mm. got on the bus to a coffee shop and then worked in the coffee shop for a few hours and come back. But it's one of those ideas that I keep talking about and have never actually done. There there is an author who I won't announce because it's season three and we haven't actually confirmed a date yet, but he uses a shared working space. So he does actually have Um, an office desk that he goes to. And actually we do have a guest on this season that used to do that before the pandemic where, Mm. yeah, to have that kind of commute work thing of just renting a desk space in an office and so actually having somewhere to go, but rather than it being a coffee shop, it is somewhere where he won't be disturbed, moved on and stuff Mm. like that. He's got his desk and he can set it up exactly how he likes. I like that idea. I quite like that. So, it might yeah. be nice to go to a desk that wasn't covered in crap all the time. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think as we've, in the UK, taken away all the COVID restrictions, whether rightly or wrongly, that's what's happened. But there's definitely people going, I've been home so much, the desire to get out and be out. Mm. And obviously we've just had our fake summer in March of four days. <laughs> Everyone's yeah. outside. Mm. But yeah, it's really interesting seeing human behavior at the moment. But yeah, I, I have think, to admit, I did. Yeah. I think I felt a bit feral eventually <laughs> uh, uh, after lockdown because uh, at the beginning of lockdown, my partner was going through treatment for cancer. So oh, we right. were both really strictly locked indoors. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, to the point where we couldn't leave the front door. By the time things started to open again, I was climbing the walls. And it was difficult to find the enthusiasm to go and sit at your writing desk because I'd seen so much of it. So, yeah, I think this year, now that, as you say, things have been relaxed, whether that's a good idea or not, I do feel the compulsion to get out a bit more, I think, this time. Because when it was sunny the other day, like you said, we had those two hot days 
I was like skipping my way up the park basically <laughs> with my notebook. Yeah. And so I do occasionally leave the house. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I also, I work a bookshop two days a week as well. Oh. Yeah. So I do get some outside time. That's good. Thankfully. A little bit of, a little bit of vitamin D. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And going on to go right back to something that you said earlier, because it's something that I always say, but you've already said it. The old adage, writing is rewriting and how <laughs> yeah. you edit your work. Obviously with Epic Fantasy, with such long drafts, I'm assuming that you don't write a draft and then go, I'm going to start another draft from scratch, just taking notes from the pr previous oh, draft. Jesus, no. Some people do that with books, obviously a lot shorter books. Yeah. I guess it's reworking individual scenes and chapters. Is it something that you do as you go, or is it that you write just almost a stream of consciousness first draft, and then you go back and go, right, now how do we make this cohesive? Yeah. I think I, I get through the first draft as, as quickly as I can. I try and get everything out. Think of it as the vomit draft yeah. where you just get it all out and you're telling yourself the story doesn't have to be perfect yet. It doesn't have to make sense completely. So you get it all out. And then usually what I do is as soon as I finish, I will make a load of notes on the stuff that I know needs to change <laughs> because there's almost always several big things that need sorting out. So a character's motivation might have changed halfway through the book, or as I was saying earlier with the world building, I'd had this sudden solution at 120,000 words. So obviously that has to go back, be threaded back through the book. So I will make a list of all these things that I know need changing. And they're usually quite big things. And they're usually character stuff or structural stuff. Mm. The things that I know instinctively need to be yeah. fixed. And that's second draft will be fixing all of that basically. So I will go through the whole book from the beginning, adding in and chopping as I go and try and get it into a version that's almost readable. <laughs> and I think my first drafts generally are relatively clean in that they do mostly hang together. It won't be anything really drastic that needs removing or anything like that. So they're mostly there. It's just all these sort of like tweaks and add-ins that I need to do in the second draft so that will be the second draft is like the version after that i will probably be able to show it to other people maybe uh, who's the um, first person who sees it um once you've done it these days it will be a juliet my agent will be the okay. first person that sees it so yeah we'll go off to her and then she will usually come back with comments and then there'll be another draft and then after that, usually it will go to the editor. So Have you ever used beta readers or is it just you've got such a good relationship with your agent that she's the only beta reader you need yeah, I used to use beta readers back in the day before I wrote The Copper Promise. Uh, I, you know, I wrote a, a number of books and I had a little group of friends and we were all writers. And so we would read each other's work and give feedback and so on. And I think I did that with The Copper Promise as well, because before it went off to be submitted anywhere, a few people, a few different people read it and gave me feedback. But these days, there just isn't really the time for beta mm. readers because I'm usually chasing a deadline. So in a perfect world, then I would give it to a couple of my friends and have them read it. And then I could do another edit according to their feedback. And then it would probably go to Juliet. But these days they just, I just don't have the time to do it. So it will go to Juliet. But the good thing is that Juliet is basically a genius and she does a lot of editorial work with her clients. So I know that she will always have good feedback for me and we'll know what's working and what isn't. So it's pretty much a godsend really. Yeah. So it the first draft will be me telling myself the story. And then the second draft will be me trying to make the story readable for someone else. And then the third draft will be me incorporating feedback basically. Yeah. And how do you cope with feedback? Is it just 
okay, I need a stiff drink. I need to go away and <laughs> scream about how it's all wrong. Yeah. And then I have to admit that they have a point. Or are you very receptive <laughs> and just like, make my work better? Yeah, I think, yeah, it's useful to have a day or so where you allow yourself to sulk about it. <laughs> because I think deep down, you when you hand the book to someone else, you deep down you believe that it's amazing yeah. and perfect and so obviously they're going to come back and tell you that it's the greatest book ever written and you don't have to change anything so it's always a little bit of a shock when they're like it's great but it needs work and you're yeah. like what i have to do more work do yeah. you not realize that i've spent a year writing this so i think you do have to give yourself a good day or so to sulk about it and get over it because i think 99 percent of the time when i've had editorial letters come back it's always been entirely correct and it's almost always stuff that I knew that it had to be fixed but was hoping that I didn't have to because yeah. it's complicated so you hope that people won't spot these massive errors yeah. and all this stuff that needs fixing but they do and you do have to fix it yeah. so you just have to get over yourself and okay. do it so eventually you come to terms with it and you're like okay at that point you start to get excited again because you think you know that all of these things are just going to make the book better and in fact I'm quite looking forward to fixing this and fixing that and I think this bit will work much better with what they've suggested so it becomes an exciting thing feedback so you have to get over the initial grumps that yeah. you have about it and then it becomes actually a really positive experience yeah. I think when you had after two successful trilogies of fantasy books and you're doing your first crime thriller did you have that feeling of this is going to blow her socks off or was there a, because you said it was like quite a struggle with the edits. So was mm. it quite a shock or was it, I'm sending to you because I don't know how to make it better. Was, was there a different <laughs> energy when that was being sent across? Yes, definitely. I think Dog Roaster was very, there's a very different experience for me from start to finish because I did, because it had changed so much from the first draft and I bounced around all over it trying to, do one thing and then the other and by the end I didn't know if it worked or not mm. at all because I think you end up having to read the thing like 10 11 times yeah and you just think I don't know if it works anymore because particularly with crime where you're giving the reader surprises mm. and cliffhangers it's very difficult to be surprised <laughs> when you've time. read the book 10 <laughs> times <laughs> so you think, I don't know if these surprises work. I don't know if these cliffhangers work or any of it. So I did give it in with this kind of, please tell me <laughs> if it works and how I yeah. can make it work. And how's that been it's... for the second thriller? Because you said like the first one was a, a big learning experience. Has it been much easier on the second? I hesitate to say easier. It's currently with the copy editor at the moment. So I yeah. feel like there's a good chance, touch wood, that I won't have to do any more structural edits on it. Yeah. I'm probably safe to say that it has been easier than the first one. I took a lot of what I learned from Dog Rose Dirt and applied it to the second book. And I had a much better idea going in of things like how I wanted to structure it, how I wanted to use flashbacks, because basically the second book has two alternate timelines. So you've got what's happening in the 80s, basically, and what's happening in the present day and how they had like more ideas about how they might interact and bump off of each other. And yeah, yeah so it was much more... It was still super difficult, I have to say, <laughs> but I felt 
like I had a better idea of what I was doing. I had some experience to go on this time. And yeah, and it seemed to work out better, I think, because there was less I had to do in the edit this time. It felt like it was more fully there by the time I sent yeah. it over. That's uh, good. Yeah, it's a relief. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was the, yeah, the, the pure unfiltered relief of uh, <laughs> the editor coming back and saying, oh, it's quite good. The whole yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, the notes isn't just a, a huge binder. That's <laughs> sort of like going through. Yeah. Um, 30 pages of uh, yeah. all of this is wrong. Yeah. With dual timeline and the 80s, being an 80s child myself, is that something that, without going too much into the plot, is it narrow enough focus that it's just looking at someone's you know, sort of childhood or just looking at someone 40 years ago? Or did you actually have to do a lot of research into that time of, I was quite young then, so I need to just establish that what I'm setting is actually fitting for the time period and the years that I'm writing about. So was there a lot of research into the past that you had to do? Yeah. First of all, it's still very upsetting when any, whenever anyone says the eighties was 40 years ago. <laughs> Sorry. I was like, oh my God, even though I am 41, I'm still like 40 years ago, surely yeah. not. Yeah. Well, the, the focus in this, in the second book is very narrow and specific, I would say, because it, the 1980s portion of it is very much directly based on my childhood holidays. So every year we used to go uh, on a caravan holiday to a very small seaside town called Dimchurch, which is in Folkestone. Uh, we would go every year. There'd be tons of us all crammed into one caravan, basically. It's all my uncles, aunts, cousins, mm. nan, granddad, mum, dad, everyone in a caravan. So the whole kind of plot line that's set in the 80s is based on those holidays and it's about something essentially going awry during that kind of two weeks in a caravan on the southeast coast. I mean, those memories are so clear and so like almost central to my personality. Core um, memories. You know, uh, core see. memories. Yeah, exactly. The core memory of growing up was these holidays in the caravan. So I felt there was a fair amount of 80s research that you have to do because you forget about like really tiny details. If they're listening to music in the caravan, how are they listening to it? Was it a radio? Did they have a boom box? Not that we took boom boxes on yeah. holidays in the caravan. Did they have a TV? Obviously no one had a phone, all of that sort of stuff. So you do have to consistently remind yourself of these little details that you just forget. Um, but mostly the research was to do with those holidays and remembering how we all interacted, the sorts of things we did, like going to sit on the beach or going crabbing or going to the slots, all of that stuff. Yeah. I felt like I already had within me because it was yeah. such a core memory, as you say. Yeah. So it felt not in any way like an easy thing to do, but it felt like a real pleasure to mine all of that stuff that was so important to me and then make it into a really horrible, scary book, <laughs> which I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble with several members of my family about because the, no actual murders happened when I was on holiday in Dimchurch that I'm aware of. Have you, uh, as yeah. part of your research, just like casually asked your parents in quite a nice, soothing way, let's reminisce over those childhood holidays. And they had no <laughs> idea that it's research for this book. And then the book's going to come out and they're like, is this what you asked about that holiday? <laughs> Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> the thing is that they, we talk about it all the time anyway. Okay. I, I'm sure that all families are the same, but when mm. we get together, I often go out for lunch with my mum and my aunties and we always talk about those holidays and all the various incidents, the sort of, you know, family memories that yeah. everyone has and we all share and have a laugh about. So 
in a way, I've been mining it for years. But yeah, there have been a few occasions where I've steered the conversation to get the finer details or or I've, I've gone through my mum's photographs as well, uh, all those family holidays and such. It's almost impossible to resist putting these things in because yeah. they were just so ripe for writing about in a way when it's very evocative for you to recall those memories it makes it slightly easier to write it in an evocative way because you are just Mm. drawing on your own experience and how it felt how it smelt like the the physical uh, as well as the emotional sensations that you associate with that can be really good to tap into yeah absolutely and i think it's so not that everybody's you know went on holiday to the southeast coast but i think most families have a similar experience with like Mm. a a holiday home that they went back Mm. to a lot and i think it's one of those kind of things that people can identify with really easily yeah i I think anyone who's had yes the luxury of holidays would have had a returning holiday destination even if it's just an auntie's house or somewhere they went during the school holiday. Yeah, I really look forward to that. That sounds amazing. Obviously, we've touched on you know, sort of learning from the first crime thriller yeah, and how that sort of has uh, paid off in, into the second. I'm just going to wrap up because I've realized we're filling our time very quickly. It's going great. But just to wrap up with my last two questions, I think it's really interesting to hear possibly how the two thrillers have and what you've learned through writing those is now informing your next fantasy book and is there anything particular that you learned through writing those thrillers that you are consciously aware of is now applying to your writing going forward yeah that's that is interesting because i think what i learned very quickly with the crime books is that you are you're essentially hiding information from the readers a lot whereas with fantasy we, you know, my previous trilogies, what you're often trying to do is trying to convince the reader that stuff is real. So mm. you're giving them a lot of information, particularly about the characters, because you want them to believe in them as real people, even if the world is very strange. So you give them a lot of background and a lot of like their inner turmoil and all this stuff. Whereas with crime, what you're often doing is not telling the reader about things and sowing these secrets through the book that keep the reader paging through because they want to know the answers to these questions. So there's much more of a balance of who knows what, when is a lot more complicated in a crime book. So I think with the fantasy book that I'm writing now, what I've been much more conscious of is the idea of putting these questions and seeding these questions throughout the fantasy book as well, which has been really interesting. So I've approached it with the idea that the central characters all have their own secrets, even if they're unaware of them. And so a lot more of the book turns around when people find out these kind of life-changing things and what that means for them and the world around them. So I think it has had an impact on the fantasy book, definitely, because I'm much more conscious of what I'm letting the reader know and what Mm. I'm keeping from them which is quite fun, really. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think fans of your previous fantasy might be shocked that the way the events unfold in this book, it sounds like it'll be quite different. I think possibly, yeah. I I feel like there's more kind of explosive revelations. Okay, that's (laughs) cool. In this one than, yeah, than previously. Hopefully, if it works. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm sure it will. I, Mm. I look forward to it. And my final question, is there one piece of writing advice that either you've read or been told or overheard that you find yourself returning to that applies to your writing and some mantra that gets you through difficult times Mm, oh god 
I feel like there's a lot of different things that I've returned to quite often. I think, I guess the main one is very general and that's the idea that writing is a long game and it takes as long as it takes. <laughs> and I think when you're just starting out, you want everything to happen immediately and you want the book to be great straight away. But the reality is that there's a lot of work involved and you do have to accept that it takes time. So you can't just necessarily bang out a book and it gets bought and it gets on the bestseller list or any of that. So it takes a lot of work and it is a craft and mm. you have a lot to learn all the time. I think that's one of the joys of writing is that I feel like I'm always learning new stuff. Yeah, every day is a day that you learn something with writing, I think. And it's good to have some patience with yourself yeah. about it. Absolutely. It's a marathon, <laughs> not a sprint. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, that's wonderful. And that's unfortunately all we have time for this week. But Jen Williams, you have been a fantastic guest. And uh, thank you very much for joining me this week. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. And that was the real writing process of Jen Williams. Toddy Shields a great guest. If you'd like to learn more about Jen, then you're in luck, for she has a proper website. It has a blog and everything. And not only does it have a link to all of her books, it has maps for all of her fancy ones. Now, we all know it's not a decent fancy book unless it has a map, but some people insist on listening to the audiobook or reading it on Kindle and depriving themselves of the full map experience. So I find it's a nice touch to have the maps on the website, and I approve. And other fantasy authors, please take note. The web address is in the show notes, and if you don't like reading the show notes, Google exists. Anyway, we only have one episode of Season 2 left. One left. Then I get to go on my summer holidays, which is now a working holiday, as I have 30 authors wanting to be on next season, and only 10 spaces. That's a lot of reading, researching, and responding to. You'll love it, though. But before all that, here's a song to remind you to please keep writing until the world ends. Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally. No, it's the harshest mistress of all. And life is just a chain of moments spent, a thousand hellos and goodbyes. Maybe a love like ours can leave out its call. I will keep you near until the world ends and you are safe with me until the world ends and I 
tight, never 